we need to do some background work to get us ready for next Sunday's sermon and the next few sermons from Daniel chapter 11 because it is quite a challenging chapter. Can we pull that door? Okay, here we go. No chapter in the entire Bible connects to as much outside historical material that we could go research and learn about than Daniel chapter 11. Nowhere else in the Bible, and it's not even close. Let me show you just a little sample of what I mean. So you can look in your Bible or you can look up here at Daniel 11 verses 5 and 6. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Got it? What are they talking about? It doesn't give us names of specific people, but do you think it's talking about specific people and specific events? So if we go back and we explore ancient writings from around the time of Daniel, and we read people like Polybius Polybius and Livy and Herodotus and Josephus and the books of the Maccabees, we find that the Bible was specifically foretelling actual historical events. And you can take Daniel 11 And in many sections of Daniel 11, you can just fill it in. If we go to the next slide here, then the king of the south, well, that's Ptolemy the first, shall be strong, but one of his princes, well, that's Seleucus, who ended up having to come work as a military commander under him. But then Seleucus rose up to actually have his own rival kingdom, shall be stronger than he, and shall rule his own kingdom of Syria. And then verse 6 Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II, shall come to the king of the north, Antiochus II, you know, one of those marriage political arrangement things. And anyway, you can fill in, you can go all the way through the chapter. And it's all, well, not all the way through the chapter. We'll talk about that later. But it's incredible. It's something like 100 direct historical connections from Daniel 11 to events that are talked about in other literature from the same time. And you can see from the dates up here that this is stuff that happened centuries after Daniel. So that's very intriguing for a couple reasons. First of all, it's amazing Bible prophecy, right? It's so amazing that it's the reason why there are so many cynics who've tried to come up with some way they can say that somebody pretending to be Daniel 500 years later wrote Daniel and it totally worked. He fooled everybody. He fooled all the Jews. He fooled Jesus. Or they all just thought it was really cool to have fake literature. And they said, oh, we know Daniel didn't write this, but this is really great stuff anyways. Let's put it in our scriptures. It's really nonsense. And even at the end of this chapter, I don't know if I'll get a chance to talk about it, but that whole theory that Daniel was written in the 160s 
falls apart at the end of Daniel 11. It's just so unsustainable. Why do they try to say somebody 500 years later wrote it? Because of all this. God foretold all of these things. So there's that part of it. But then uh, here's the other question that we've got to ask. Do you have to know the historical information, background information, to be able to understand this chapter? Because Emma and Brielle, they're sitting right here, they're looking at that screen, and they've probably never heard of Seleucus I and his kingdom of Syria. So are they lost souls because of that? Or, you understand what I'm asking? There's all this background. When you first read Daniel, it's very hard to understand without it. Could you get the point of Daniel 11 if you had no access to the historical background? What does the answer have to be? Yes. Because, do you know, books are a fairly recent thing. The internet is an even more recent thing. What we're doing right now this morning is astonishing. We could go, you could go right now on Google and fact check me on Polybius. Now, how many Christians in human history have even heard of him, much less been able to go find his writings about the Syrian civil wars in 30 seconds on Google? As a matter of fact, many Christians, many places, many times couldn't read. And yet they could hear Daniel 11 and understand it. So today, as we're beginning to overview this remarkable historical background, which is fun to talk about, I want us to remember how privileged we are to even have access to this information. And I want us to remember that as interesting and helpful as it is, you could have none of the outside historical background and get the point of the chapter. And you could have all of this outside historical background and miss the point. And so that helps us stay humble and seeking the Lord to understand this. So let's look at some of the history. And this is to help us get ready to prayerfully understand the point in the weeks ahead. So here we go. So let's jump in and let's start before Daniel 11 with the fall of Babylon in 539 BC. Next slide. There we go. Fall of Babylon 539, which ushers in the reign of Cyrus and the Persian Empire. And so remember that Daniel 10.1 tells us, next slide, remember that Daniel 10.1 tells us that this vision or this revelation happened during the third year of Cyrus. Not the third year since Cyrus had any power at all, but the third year after the conquest of Babylon or 536 BC. In that year, the angel Gabriel brought this revelation from God. I'm going to use two different timelines this morning. I hope that'll be helpful, not confusing. It's two different ways to visualize it. So here's another look. Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So 605 is when Daniel would have been taken to Babylon. Persia defeats Babylon. And then Daniel receives this vision in 536. And look at Daniel 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Okay? So after Cyrus and after Daniel had already died, three more Persian kings would follow. And we could talk about who those kings were in history. They ruled for about 45 years combined, but it really doesn't matter because if you look back at verse 2, it keeps right on going. 
and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, that fourth ruler is Xerxes the first. He's the Persian ruler who tried to stir up the empire against Greece. In the Bible, he's called Ahasuerus. So which book of the Bible records events that happened in his palace? Esther, right? As a matter of fact. So, so first of all, that's pretty remarkable by itself that Daniel's getting this vision back here and he's being told about some of the most significant events of the fourth Persian emperor after Cyrus. That's kind of like, it's even harder than this, but it's kind of like us saying today, here's what the fourth president of the United States is going to be after our current president. And here's one of the most important things that's going to happen during his time as president, except it's even further than that. It's more than 50 years, 50 years later. Verse 2, in chapter 11, and now I will show you the truth. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. A fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So I actually did not know this or had forgotten this, but I think I did not know this. That banquet in Esther chapter one, almost all Bible scholars think that that banquet was part of Xerxes trying to rally support for his invasion of Greece. It's exactly what Daniel eleven two is talking about. It wasn't just a banquet for fun. It was a political fundraiser or support raiser because he was really, really mad at Greece and trying to go invade them, which he ended up doing. Okay, so next slide. So here on our timeline, we see how Daniel 11 verse 2 just kind of really quickly skims over all that period past three Persian kings, all the way up to Xerxes. But again, Daniel 11 isn't interested in lingering there. So verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Well, that's pretty vague, right? A great powerful king. So we got to keep going. Verse 4, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled, which means none of those four parts will be as strong, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Ah, so that tells us verses 3 and 4 are talking about whom? Who was a very mighty king after the Persians who died too soon and his empire was divided four ways? Alexander, Alexander the Great. Exactly. Verses 3 and 4 are about Alexander the Great. So that means that actually, next slide, between Daniel 11.2 and Daniel 11.3, the last 150 years of the Persian Empire go by, which is inconsequential for the story that, he's, that God is revealing here. Um, so we fly past, next slide, so several more Persian kings over the course of 150 years, and then Greece defeats Persia, Next slide. And Alexander the Great rules, though very briefly, so we have a little short green line down there for the beginning of the Greek Empire and Alexander's shockingly short reign before he died unexpectedly. And then in the years that followed, his kingdom ended up being generally divided into four portions. And Daniel 11 
verses 4 through 20, overviews some of the key events in that part of the story, covering about 160 years of history. Okay, so let's pause there for just a second. So um, does that make sense? 11.2 skims over that part of the Persian Empire right after Daniel received this vision, about the next 50 years or so. And then doesn't care about the rest of the Persian Empire. 11.3 gets us to Alexander the Great. Yeah, he was important. On we go. <laughs> 11.4 through 20 is all about this fourfold division of the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great. Okay, next slide. So has this fourfold division of the Greek Empire been prophesied about previously in Daniel. Does that ring any bells? Daniel 7, a leopard representing Greece has four heads. In Daniel 8, Greece is represented by a goat. And when its strong horn is broken, there come up four horns in its place. So actually, this is the third time that the book of Daniel refers to the fourfold division of the Greek empire. But as has been true all each time, it's not the fourfold division that's the point. It's really the way that one of these divisions leads up to Antiochus IV, who assaults the Jewish people in Jerusalem and brings abomination into the temple. And as we've already learned, Antiochus IV is actually a lens through which we look ahead to see a final terrible ruler that's still coming in the future. So, if I add the verses from Daniel 11 up here, verses 4 through 20, yeah, that's fine too. Uh, verses 4 through 20, that fourfold division, and then that, that's fine too. And verse, <laughs> oh, Sam, you're doing great. I know I made this not easy for you. All right. And then chapter 11, verse 21 begins to describe the reign of Antiochus. Okay, go back one slide. Verse 39 question mark. Because see what happens here is it starts describing Antiochus IV and then at some point it stops describing Antiochus IV and starts describing the final terrible ruler at the end of the age. We start reading things that don't seem like they're accurate for Antiochus IV anymore. They're talking about somebody else at the end, very end of the chapter. And then the beginning of chapter 12, of Daniel 12, gets to resurrection and final judgment. And so somewhere at the end of Daniel 11 and beginning of Daniel 12, you skip way ahead. Yeah, we can go to the next one now. You skip way ahead past Antiochus IV, and you're talking about the final terrible ruler at the end of the age. Let's see what the next slide is, because I don't remember. Ta-da! There we go. Look at that. I figured out how to use a gradient in PowerPoint and make that little dot go from green to red. But that's actually really important to understand because somewhere at the end of Daniel 11, it shifts. And there's a lot of argument and there's like 18 billion pages written by scholars about this. Um, but somewhere we're talking about a final terrible ruler. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we get final judgment and resurrection and the end of the age. Okay, so Sam, at this point, I don't even know where I'm at. So we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, yep, yep, yep. Okay, let's try the next slide and see what it is. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so remember this. In Daniel 7, the vision was four beasts leading up to one final terrible ruler. In Daniel 8, what did we have? Next slide. In Daniel 8, 
the vision was two beasts leading up to one final terrible ruler. In Daniel 9, the vision is about 77s leading up to one final terrible ruler. And guess what? In Daniel 11, the vision is about the history of the divided Greek empire leading up to one final terrible ruler. Remember when we had the lesson about how, why, why Daniel is difficult? And we said one of the reasons why Daniel is challenging is because it talks about the same thing, but in different ways from different angles. Here you're seeing it, right? Different visions, different parts of the story, different ways to think about the same thing. And so let me just, because I didn't give you this in words last Sunday, let me just put up on the screen for you, again, this big picture of what kind of the overall picture is in Daniel. And if you want to write this down, grab your phone and take a picture of it here before it goes away. Human history will be the story of one earthly kingdom after another, like beasts who tend to be power-hungry and arrogant and often persecute God's people, but always end up getting replaced by another, leading up to a final terrible ruler who horribly persecutes God's people, but is judged and defeated by God, and King Jesus reigns as King of Kings in the stone kingdom that pulverizes all the others and fills the earth, and the saints possess the kingdom forever. That's Daniel in one screen, at least in terms of the the picture of history that it's giving to us. Yes, ma'am. Yes, exactly. The last week, yes, framework. Because once you kind of grab this framework, then it gets a little easier to see how the different parts of Daniel all connect into this, this framework. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So now we can come back here and see this overall picture of what's in Daniel 11 and in the beginning of chapter 12. The first half of this is skimmed over in just the first two verses. So if we're talking about the historical background now, we can kind of leave all that behind. It's this part of the story that we have so much historical background about this timeline from the 320s to the 160s BC. Or as we saw it in the other timeline, it's this part of the story where there's all of this really intriguing um, historical background. It's the time of the fourfold division of the Greek Empire as it leads up to Antiochus IV, who then points us ahead to a terrible final ruler. Okay, next slide. Now, the story in Daniel 11 actually focuses in on just two of the four divisions of the Greek Empire. Why is that? Well, the easiest way to see the answer is on a map. The divided Greek empire was complicated, but you can see on this map that two of the kingdoms had by far the most territory, and they were the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom. Sometimes, to keep it simple, these are just called Syria in the north and Egypt in the south. I think that should be on the next slide. Yeah, Syria and Egypt. But... What are the kings of these two kingdoms called in Daniel? You can see it in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 11. King of the king of the north and king of the south, right? Right. So here's, here's the question. Why would Daniel be especially interested in these two parts of the Greek empire and not the rest? Oh, no. You got a clue. Put that slide away. Why would Daniel be interested in these two parts of the empire? 
You didn't see that slide. Who's got a brilliant answer? <laughs> you can see that little, little, like where it goes from green to red. Where is that? That's like north. I mean, that's like north Israel, like close up to Lebanon. That whole area was, uh, so you can go to the next slide now. The, you can see why. Okay, so the, 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 the Seleucid kings, they would not have called themselves the kings of the north. Why are they called that in Daniel 11? Because from Israel's perspective, they were the kings to the north. The, the, the Egyptian kings wouldn't have called themselves the kings of the south. From Israel's perspective, they were the kings of the south. And guess where Israel was? Stuck right in between these two warring kingdoms. And there's a long history about Seleucus and Ptolemy and why one was general, why Seleucus was general under Ptolemy and then how he came to his own kingdom. It's a long, kind of complicated history. But the bottom line is they ended up rivals fighting back and forth over that same region in between. Not just Israel, broader region around it, including Lebanon and Jordan and so forth. And that region was very important because major caravan... Well, I mean, you know how the topography goes there, right? Like, you don't want to go across the the Arabian Peninsula. Um, You want to go through there. So the caravan routes went through there. You've got seaports there in the Mediterranean. You've got the forests of Lebanon and everything. It was a very highly desirable area. And so they were constantly fighting over it. And so Israel's kind of in the middle, just getting trampled in all those battles. And what do you know? Even today, it's this flashpoint of so much world conflict right, right there. Okay, next slide. So Daniel 11, 5 through 20, summarize about 150 years of that conflict from roughly 325 to 175 B.C. So again, why is this important to Daniel? We've seen the first reason. It was important because Daniel's people were going to be stuck in the middle of all these fights. But there's another reason why we keep seeing these two parts of these kingdoms over and over again. And it's because from one of these two kingdoms, a terrible ruler was going to arise in the 170s BC. So which kingdom did Antiochus IV come from? Was he a king of the north or a king of the south? North. He was, he was a Seleucid king, a king of the north. So if we go back to the next slide. If we go back to seeing it this way, Daniel 11, 4 through 20 is only interested in two parts of the kingdom. And there are two reasons why. First, because Israel was going to be caught between the two of them. And secondly, because... Next slide. Antiochus IV was going to come from the Seleucid Northern Kingdom, and horribly mistreat Israel. Next slide. Okay. So this shows it to us again. From one of the four arises Antiochus IV, a terrible king of the north, but then late in the chapter, it shifts away from him to someone even later. I am so happy about this slide. So happy. Because I feel like I understand it. And before we started studying Daniel, I could not have begun to wrap my mind around some of this. This slide makes me very happy. And that one slide framework makes me very happy uh, because I feel like I'm learning and nothing's worse than teaching when you're not learning. (laughs) So your pastor is learning and hopefully this makes a little bit of sense. 
of what's going on in Daniel 11. Any questions about that before I give you just a couple other things? Ah, oh, good. Thank you for not asking any questions. Okay. Just kidding. Um, so the next thing we could do then is we could go through all of the historical connections of Daniel 11 verses 5 through 20. But man, oh man, would that take us a long time and get very complicated. Let's just pick another section of it and read it. You ready? Where shall we go? Verse 14. In those times, many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Wow, that's just three verses. And we could talk about lots of things related to just those three verses. So to go through all of it is way more than we're able to do um, in a public service here. You can find lots of summaries of it. Um, Like, for example, I've referred several times to John Lennox. This is his book, Against the Flow. He's got a wonderful summary of Daniel 11 that's very readable. Um, So I'm just going to highlight a couple of interesting things. And then next week, we're going to talk about what these things mean. So one of the interesting things is there are some battles here that are kind of famous in history, like chapter 11, verse 11. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. So this is Antiochus III fighting against Ptolemy IV at the battle of Raphia, which is kind of a famous historical battle. And one of the reasons why it's something you find in history books sometimes, even for kids, is because it was a battle with war elephants. Uh, And we actually know the numbers. Ptolemy had 73 African war elephants, and Antiochus III had 103 larger Asian elephants. But apparently the African war elephants were better because in that battle, the South won. Uh, In verse 17, we also have a reference to Cleopatra. Middle of verse 17, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. Now, this isn't the Cleopatra we know because this is Cleopatra the first, and the Cleopatra that we usually hear about is Cleopatra the seventh. Um, But this is the first Cleopatra, and when she was 10, she was the 10-year-old daughter of one of the kings of the north, and she was given in marriage to the 16-year-old king of the south, and it was all a setup by her dad to try to have an angle into the palace in the south to get control over them, and it didn't work. She didn't uh, do what she, he wanted her to do. So there's Cleopatra the first in verse 17. So there are some interesting historical moments here, um, but getting down into those details is really not especially important. And then in verse 21, it describes the rise to power of Antiochus IV. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And this is going to continue on down through at least verse 39. And then look at what words start verse 40. At the time of the end. Now, let's read it. 
at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Now, isn't that fascinating? We're talking about Antiochus IV in the 160s BC. And then it says, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Who's him? Antiochus IV? Or some later, later final terrible ruler. It starts to get really, really interesting in the last verses of chapter 11. And then when you get to chapter 12, verse 1, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Is that, did that happen in the 160s BC? Definitely not. So somehow we have transitioned clear to the end by Daniel 12, 4. So in the next sermons, we're going to tackle those things. And... Uh, uh, I hope you might pray for the Lord to help in preparing how to preach that because it is um, it's complicated material and it's a it's this little point in Bible prophecy in which you can try to bring in about a dozen other passages and it can get really overwhelming really fast. So I would love your prayers for the Lord to give me wisdom about how to best preach the end of Daniel 11 and beginning of Daniel 12. But I'm so delighted that we've got a general framework for understanding Daniel that um, I understand. And if I can understand it, I think we can all understand it. And this makes me happy. You ready for the weeks ahead? Yeah, God's going to help us walk through it. Uh, what, what he does is not based on my strength or your strength, but his strength. Praise the Lord. All right, 1144. Look at that. Good. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves and our hearts to you. We know that even if we didn't have access to any of this historical background, you could take Daniel 11 and 12 and you could change our hearts with them. You could fill us with Christ through them. So we pray for that, that you might help in the preaching of the word in these weeks ahead, that our, so our hearts might be really soft soil and the seeds of Daniel 11 and 12, you might plant deeply in us, and then you might grow fruit a hundredfold from those seeds. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.